from that initial survey. Uh, this church uh, is in Section 1, Township 3 in uh, 1 East, 1 Range East. Now, the reason that's so significant is when the immigrants first uh, began to arrive from back east, they uh, were given a plot of land. The Homestead Act was passed into law shortly before uh, the survey began here in Idaho. And uh, every homesteader was given a plot of land, 160 acres, to develop. They had to find it. So they came out here and looked for those posts. And uh, they put up their little shacks and uh, put up their corrals and began to break sod, prepare the soil, cultivate it. And little by little, they took possession of the land. They owned it when they came. All they had to do was live on it for five years and prove it up. It was theirs. They had the title deed to it. But they had to possess all of it before it was really theirs. Now, there's a very near analogy to that history in the book of Joshua. It's here in chapters 13 through 19. Now, this is an enormous text in terms of just sheer volume. If I read it from beginning to end, it would take the entire 40 minutes. Uh, You might wonder, what what good can come out of this? I mean, it's just this interminable list of cities and geographical locations and physical features, and what's, what's it all all here for? Well, Paul said it's profitable. He said all Scripture, and he was thinking specifically the Old Testament because that was for him the Scriptures. It's all the Scripture he had. All Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. So our task this morning is to find the prophet in these lists of, of names. George Herbert He's a country parson and poet from the 17th century. He said, when you open the Bible, you find thousands of surprises. So what we want to do this morning is become surprised, surprised by joy, as we look at this this text. Now, uh, let me give you an outline of my method so you know where I'm going. I want to talk just briefly. I spent too much time in the first service and didn't have time really to finish the sermon. So I'm just going to take a very few minutes to talk about the history of this event. Because it is history, you understand. This is not myth, it's not made up, this is a real thing. It happened. That's the genius of, of our faith, is that it's rooted in historical facts. So we want to take just a minute to look at that, at what actually happened on this particular date in history. And then secondly, <clears throat> we, want to, we want to see where this little slice of history fits into the larger history of salvation. Uh, the Bible, as theologians are fond of saying, is a holy history. It's the story of how God brought salvation to the earth. Salvation didn't begin with the cross. It began with creation, or shortly thereafter, when, when man fell, when the human race fell, and God set out, without wasting any time at all, to set things right. So... There's, a, there's an ongoing history. There's a continuum. And any time you read the Bible, you need to think, now, wh- where does this text fit in that, in that flow of, of history? Uh, literary critics are fond, are, say, are fond of saying that good stories begin in the middle of things. That is, there's an ongoing history. And, and what happens, happens in that context. So that's the second thing we, we want to do. We want to look at this history in terms of the larger history of salvation. The third thing we want to do is look for some of these surprises that will touch our hearts. 
we want to put head and heart together because it does no good to just cram our heads full of a bunch of facts and walk out of here and go watch the Super Bowl. What we want to do is relate these facts, as obscure as they may be, to our walk with our Lord here in, in our time, our space. All right. Now, uh, let me just do a quick run through. I'm just going to take, someone can time me if you want, about five or seven minutes to, to run through five chapters, if you can believe that. Um, I actually want to go back two chapters to chapter 13 and just point out that the story of the distribution of the land begins with chapter 13. Now, you remember what happened? Joshua conquered the land, a 25-year campaign. Only loss of life was that I broke the, the, the back of Canaanite resistance, conquered some of the major city-states throughout the land of Canaan so that the major resistance was suppressed, but there are still Canaanites in the land. If you look at your little map, you'll see there's an, there's an outline of the area yet to be possessed. It's outside of the beaded, uh, those beaded boundaries. So there's much to be yet to be obtained. Joshua had led the entire Israeli army for the first 25 years. Now he steps into the background, and it's the responsibility of each tribal unit to to move into these Canaanite enclaves and begin to take their territory. They were given the land, but they had to take possession of it. Now, that's an important concept. It was given to them by lot, which meant that, that God's providence was behind it. It wasn't the luck of the draw. It wasn't an accident. They got that particular piece of land. Each tribe was given a particular piece of land, some good, some bad, some a little bit of both. But it was given because it was a gift of God. Now, in chapter 13, what you have is a reminder of the distribution of the land on the east side of Jordan, over in what today is Jordan and Syria. There were three tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. They were given their allocation by Moses on the east side of the river. And he crossed over to the west side to Gilgal and uh, gathered there in the presence of God, and Joshua began to allocate the rest of the lands by lot. In chapter 14, you just have a general statement of that allocation. And then in chapter 15, we begin with Judah. And you'll notice that, that Judah, if you look on your map, you can see that Judah acquired an enormous uh, piece of land, though they were not the largest of the uh, tribes. We'll see why that's important later. What you also notice, a little circle around the city of Jebus. That's the city of Jerusalem, later called Jerusalem, city of peace. At that time, it was called Jebus because of the Jebusites, Canaanites lived there. A little Canaanite enclave right in the middle of Judah's portion. Jerusalem really never belonged to any tribe. It was, it was like a federal district, like our District of Columbia, but it's right there on the north side of, of the boundary, northern boundary of, of the tribe of, of Judah. So in chapter 15, Judah's given her lot. Uh, here's this long list of physical features, geographical notations, boundaries, east side, west side, north side, and so forth. And then at the end of the chapter, you have a list of cities, all of which were many of which were still in the hands of Canaanites, all of which were to be, uh, were to be occupied. Then in chapter 16, you have the lot for Joseph. Joseph uh, was actually divided into two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph was the son of Jacob. But for various reasons, which we'll look at next week in the story of the Levites, uh, Joseph's tribe was divided in two, and Ephraim and Manasseh received their allotment in chapter 16. First Ephraim in verses 5 and following, and then Manasseh in, in chapter 17. You'll notice that Manasseh also has property on the had property on the east side of the Jordan, so it was half the tribe of Manasseh that was given its allocation at this point. Then in chapter 18, you move up to Shiloh, which is up in the highlands. You, you can locate Shiloh there. It has a ring around it. They move from Gilgal, which is down along the Jordan River, 
up to Shiloh, move the tent of meeting up there. It's first reference to the tent of meeting in Joshua. Again, they gather in the presence of the Lord, and they cast lots. Joseph, uh, uh, Joshua gives them a little uh, locker room pep talk, go and take the land. And then they do an interesting thing. They choose three men from each tribe, and these men go throughout the land, and they serve it. They note the dimensions of it, the physical features, the arable parts of the land, and they write it in a book. It's interesting. Some of you may remember from your uh, from English history, from your high school and college days, that there, there was a, a book that was written back in the 17th century called the... No, 12th century. It was called the Doomsday Book. And William the Conqueror conquered England. He sent men throughout, throughout uh, England uh, to note where the castles were and where the, grand, the land grants were. And they wrote it in a book called the Doomsday Book. Well, this was Joshua's Doomsday Book. He actually wrote down the dimensions of the land and the various tribal allotments. And then when the tribes gathered again at Shiloh, uh, they made a distribution of the lands. First to Benjamin in verse 11 of chapter 18. Then a little Simeon in 19. Simeon actually was not given uh, land as such. They were given some cities within Judah, and they were shortly after were assimilated into, into Judah and just simply ceased to exist as a tribe. And then in verse 10 of chapter 19, Zebulun, and then 17, Issachar, which is actually part of Manasseh, given part of Manasseh's land. And then verse 32, Naphtali. Verse 40, Dan, way up in the north. And finally, in, in verse 49, Joshua, this wonderful old hero, the general of Israel's army, uh, is, is honored by, giving a very, uh, by, being given, by being given a very special place. Now, that's five chapters in five minutes, I think. Now, um, if you take a look at the map, you can see that there was much land yet to be conquered. Uh, there were these Canaanite enclaves here and there. In some cases, if you look, if, if, if you can find Mount Carmel, you'll see there's a valley that, that stretches from, the, from Mount Carmel southeast toward the Jordan River. It's called the Plain of Esdraelon. It is even today uh, a an, an highly arable piece of land. It's a it's farming country. There's a, there's a stream, the Kishon, that flows there. It's a beautiful country. And it was in that day. It was a choice piece of land. But the Canaanites occupied it. They had chariots. And the Manassites uh, could never conquer it. So there's a bit of counsel that's given to them, which will uh, return later. There are other features of the map that you can look at as kind of orient you as, as we talk. Now, so much for the history. That's what actually happened. Israel was given this allotment in the land with the charge to possess what they possessed. Now, uh, I want to look at, the, at this piece of history in terms of the broader context of the history of salvation. Why is this here? What's so important about this little piece of real estate over in, <clears throat> in the Middle East? Why so much time to develop this concept? Well, again, we have, to, we have to look at the larger picture, what the Bible is all about. As I said, salvation did not begin with the cross or even the crib. It began with creation. Uh, Adam and Eve turned their backs on God. God immediately, without wasting a moment, set about to make things right. And he gave this promise to Adam and Eve. There's a man coming, the seed of the woman, who someday is going to trample on the head of the serpent and kill him. But in so doing, uh, he'll, he'll bruise his heel. He'll bruise the serpent's head. That's a mortal wound, but he'll bruise his heel. That's a very painful wound, one that you live with sometimes for the rest of your life. And what, what this was is what theologians call the protevangel, the first giving of the gospel. It's someday, someday, a man would come 
who would put things right but would do so at great cost. There would be great pain inflicted upon him. It's a wonderful picture of the cross and what our Lord did when he put down the evil one in his works and he assured us of our forgiveness and of the ongoing grace of God and heaven that's ahead. Now, uh, all that was given to Adam and Eve. Now, the promise was restated to, to Noah and specifically to one of his sons, Shem. God said that, that he would dwell in the house in the tents of Shem. So we know now that the man would come. Not, he wouldn't just be a human being. He, he would be a Semite. He wouldn't come from Europe. He'd come from the Middle East somewhere. And then we're told that he would be a descendant of Abraham and then a descendant of Jacob and then Isaac, or pardon, Isaac, and then Jacob, and then the descendant of Judah, one of Jacob's sons. And Jacob, in his dying days when he was blessing his sons, laid his hand on Judah, who was not the firstborn at all, but the third, fourth of his sons. Uh, Reuben, Simeon, Levi were the first three. And, and he laid his hand on Judah. And he said, The scepter will not depart from your tribe until Shiloh comes. Shallow is a Semitic word for the man of peace, the man who makes peace. Here's this remarkable prediction that long before there were any kings that came out of the tribe of Judah, that a line of kings would come out of that tribe which would culminate in the coming of the man of peace, the one that was promised back in the book of Genesis. And you begin to see something that makes some sense out of this geography that there's a reason why Judah is so prominent. There's a reason... Why, why Bethlehem is located there in Judah and in, in the proximity to the royal city of, of David, Jebus, because the king would come from Judah. Now, that's the first aspect of the promise, the seed. The second aspect of the promise is a people. Abraham was, was told that a, a, a host of nations would spring from you. And that became literally true. true. Millions of people claimed descent, that they're descendants of of Abraham. And, and out of this, there was a hard core of God's people who were charged with the responsibility of going everywhere and telling people about Shiloh, about the man of peace who was to come. That was their task. The Old Testament is one of the greatest missionary books in the world because it tells us that, that the task of the people of God is to bring salvation to the people around them. And Abraham, wherever Abraham went, put up his little pup tent, built a little altar out of stones. And uh, the text usually says he called upon the name of the Lord. No, no, no. What, what, it, what it means is he made proclamation in the name of the Lord. He preached to the Canaanites. Because God loves Canaanites as well as Israelites. So you, 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 that's why you have a land there. You, you have a people. So here's, here's a seed, the coming, a human being who's going to bring salvation. And you have a people who carry that message. And then you have a place where they can live so they can preach it. Why Canaan? Because it's the most strategic place on the face of the earth in ancient times. If you look at a map of the ancient world, you see that, that almost the entire world was concentrated right around what we call Israel today. All of the major trade routes ran east, north and south through the land of Canaan. The, the, the way to the kings along the coast, or pardon me, up on the ridge, and the Via Maris, they call it the way to the sea, on the Levant, down, down along the coast. And you couldn't go anywhere in the ancient world without passing through the Promised Land. 
If you were down in Egypt and you wanted to go over to Mesopotamia or, or today, which is Iran, Iraq, or in the Tigris Euphrates Valley, you didn't cut across the country. That was desert. You came up to the land of Canaan, over the Fertile Crescent, and down in, into Mesopotamia. If you were in, in uh, uh, up in Anatolia, where the Hittites live, what today is Turkey, same thing. You want to get down to Egypt, you got to come right down through the through the land of Canaan. If you were a mariner in those days, you didn't cut across the Mediterranean because they didn't have ships that could handle the, the storms. They hugged the coast. So they went right along the coast of Canaan to Akko and, and to Joppa and these other... They put in there for, for, for provisions. And there would be the people of God with the message of the man who had come to save them. That's why they got land. It wasn't because God just arbitrarily decided to put them in that place. What do you think so great about the place? Some of it was pretty miserable. But God had a people with a message that He put in that place so they could bring salvation to the world. That was their task. Now, I just want to say in passing that your desk, your office, your farm, your neighborhood, your classroom, your ranch, wherever you find yourself, that's the most strategic place on the earth. Because that's the place where God has one of His people carrying the message of the seed to make proclamation to the world about the salvation that's come. Boy, does that ever change the way you look at your office? You know, a place, not a place where you go down and just grind it out, but a place where you, just like Abraham, can preach the gospel quietly, gently, lovingly, and living it before people. You can be a sweet fragrance of Christ right where you are. And that makes your place, your lot. Maybe it's your literal lot that you live on. But whatever it is, that's the most strategic place in the world. That's where God has you so you can carry the message of salvation to the world around you. Now, the third thing I want to do is look at some of these surprises. And we'll uh, cover as much ground as we can. There are a bunch of them here. And we may just have time to talk about two or three. Let's see. Let's start with chapter 15. Let, let, me, let me first of all lay a little bit of groundwork. Um, the, the New Testament does an interesting thing with Israel's inheritance. Uh, there's a particular word that's used in the book of Joshua, chapters 13 through 19, to describe the inheritance. Along about 200 years before Christ, uh, they published a group of scholars meeting in Alexandria, translated the Bible into Greek, and published it throughout the world. That was the Bible that the apostles used. They read the Old Testament in Greek, by and large. They, they could read it in Hebrew, but, but mostly they read it in Greek. Uh, that's why, by the way, some of the quotations in the New Testament don't quite square with the Old Testament because they were using that, the Septuagint in, the, in their quotes. Paul, Peter, others began to use the word that's used for inheritance, the Greek words used for inheritance in their Greek Bibles for the land of Israel, for our possession as Christians. The inheritance for us is not a piece of land over in Israel. The inheritance for us is God and everything that God wants to give us in this life and the next. It's forgiveness. It's His mercy. It's His grace. It's His love. And it's heaven on ahead. And it's God Himself. That's our inheritance. Uh, let me read some verses from the, uh, from the apostles. Um, 
first is in uh, Colossians. Paul prays that we might be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might so that we may have great endurance and patience and joyfully give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, in the kingdom of light. Same word. You have an inheritance. A piece of real estate, but it's more real than a piece of land in Palestine is God Himself. Peter writes, Praise be the, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. That's heaven. That's your inheritance. Paul again, Now I commit you to God, to the word of His grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those which are being saved. Uh, here's an Old Testament passage that spiritualizes the inheritance. Just stumbled across this one day. It really surprised me. The psalmist says, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. Did you get that? You have assigned to me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Was, was he talking about a piece of real estate down on, on the med where he had his condo, you know, a pleasant place. No, he was talking about God himself, an inheritance that he had because he had all of God and all the goodies, everything that God wanted to give him. That's our inheritance. Now, tuck that in the back of your mind, and I want you to look at some of these things I call surprises. The first is verse 13 of chapter 15. Chris talked last week about Caleb, and I don't, I don't want to go back through uh, that material. I just want to read a couple of verses. By the way, I think of these as, as, as not, not only as surprises, but, but little vignettes, little pictures. You know, it, if, if you're just reading down through this list of feature, physical features and boundary lines, and it gets real boring, and then right in the middle of it, poof, here's this wonderful little surprise, this little story about Caleb. Uh, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the sons of Judah. Actually, uh, Caleb was an outsider. He, was a, he was, uh, wasn't a Jew. According to the command of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that's Hebron. And Cabron, Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Shishai, Ahimon, Talmai, the children of Anak. Then he went up from there against the inhabitants of Deborah. Now the name of Deborah formerly was Kiriath-Sephir. Kiriath-Sephir means a city of books. There's a repository of Canaanite uh, magical uh, manuscripts and occult literature and, and pornographic uh, stuff. And Caleb said, The one who attacks Kriosephir and captures, I'll give him Aksam, my daughter, as a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, who became a great hero in Israel, one of the judges, the brother of Caleb captured it, so he gave him Aksai's daughter as a wife. And it came about that when she came to him, she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. So she alighted from the donkey, and Caleb said to her, what, what do you want? And she said, Give me a blessing, since you've given me the land of the Negev, the, the desert, the barren part of Canaan. Give me also springs of water. So he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. I love this old guy, Caleb. His name is Dog in Hebrew. Kalev. And dogs back in ancient times weren't man's best friend. They were wild, feral animals. They were like jackals. You know, I, I think today of, of a junkyard dog, that was Caleb. One tough dude. 
and he was 85 years of age. One of the of only two men that had any faith to go into the land. He had seen the land of promise. He had been up on Hebron. He'd seen the giants that frightened the rest of Israel and turned them away from their conquest. And he shows up now, 85 years of age. You know, sword cuts all over his body and stitches and big dents in his helmet and a gimpy knee. And he, he, he walks up to, to Joshua and he says, I want the high country. I'm going to go all the way. He could have retired down by the med, you know, worked on his golf game, fish, hunted, whatever. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I want everything that God has for me. God bless this old man. And what did it were true of us? That we want the high places. We will not be content with anything less than all of God. We will not sell out for anything but God Himself. We want to will what He wants, what He wills, do what He wants us to do, any load, any distance, any, any time, any place. We belong to Him. What a great old man. You know, I have a friend of mine that says uh, more people die in Winnebago's than any other vehicle. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Some people get old, they shrivel up and die. Here's a man that wanted, wanted the heights. Saw a, a tombstone once from a Swiss climber and uh, sat on the tombstone. He died climbing. I hope that's true of you. I hope that's true of me. This old guy inspired his brother, Othniel, who, as I said, became one of the greatest heroes of Israel, one of their judges, one of their champions, to go take Debir. Debir was a little town just to the southeast of, uh, of, of uh, Hebron, which, as I said, was kind of a nest of evil. And, and Caleb inspired him to go down and, and burn that thing to the ground. You know, it's interesting, uh, William F. Albright excavated that place back in the 40s, and he actually found a burn layer right at the late Bronze Age uh, burn layer, right at the time of, of Joshua. Just flattened the city. And one of the most interesting things that he found was a pit into which he had, uh, this fellow, Othniel, had thrown all of the cult uh, idols and things, everything that belonged to the Canaanite cult, broken them up, smashed their heads, thrown them in there, and covered them over with dirt. And, and I would say, as you age in the Lord and as you gain in wisdom and your understanding of who he, who he is, for goodness sake, pass that on to others, inspire others. Othniel was at least 40 years younger than Caleb. You just do the numbers. I mean, there wasn't. The, the, Caleb and Joshua had no contemporaries. Do you realize that? that? Their nearest contemporary was 40 years younger than they because the whole generation had died off in the wilderness. And here's this younger brother, 40 years younger than he. And Caleb inspires this young man to great deeds. And I, and I hope you're doing that. I hope you found, you found a, a, a Timothy or a, a Martha, someone to whom you can begin to impart the wisdom that God has given to you. Younger men and women are crying out for mentors. Or be a Caleb. Inspire them. Uh, let's see. What else can we say? Um... Here's an interesting thing. In chapter 18, let's see, are we out of time? Just about. Remember I told you that he sent men through each tribe to write a description of it, and that was Israel's doomsday book? I, I think that sounds to me a lot like what the Bible is to us. The apostles 
were those that first searched out the land, our inheritance in Christ, and then they wrote it in a book. And if you want to know what the land holds for you, then this is where you're going to find it. Begin to read the Word and believe it. This is your inheritance. This is, what, this is your lot. This is what God has given to you. The issue now is to take possession of what you already possess. Ask God to help you to enter into it, to begin to act on the basis of, of the truth of, of this Word. Paul prays in Ephesians that we may know what is the height and the depth and the width and the breadth and all the dimensions of the love of God. That's what, that's what the Bible is. It's a doomsday book that, that gives us all the dimensions of the love of God. And as we read it, we can begin to enter in. Now, I want to mention a couple of things here that to me are very striking. Uh, they're, they're, oh, I forgot to mention these daughters of Zelophehad back in chapter 17, verse 3. Uh, Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, I'm reading 17.3. The son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, had no sons, only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Malan, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, Tirzah. And they came near before Eleazar the priest and before Joshua the son of Nun and before the leaders, saying, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. So according to the command of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among their father's brothers. I've never heard anybody preach on the daughters of Zelophehad. I wish somebody would do it sometime. These are... These are five unknown women who were profound in their faith. They came to Moses before the land was even conquered, while they were still up on the, the, the Golan Heights, up, uh, Goshen, where they way up high. And uh, they, they, they believed the promise that God was going to take the land. So they said, look, our, our father died. We don't have any brothers. There's no one to inherit the land. Give it to us. You see, in the ancient world, women did not inherit property anywhere in the ancient world. All property is held in the hands of men. So they're asking Moses to, to really overturn convention. Give it to us as women. And uh, Moses did that. He had the, he had the courage to, to overthrow a, a cultural norm and to establish a case law in Israel. It's found in Numbers. That became a precedent, a legal precedent for Israel, that women could hold property. Now these five women come and say, okay, you promised, now give us that piece of land. And what I would say from this is to you women, you do not, you must not think of yourself as disciplets or subsets of men or some kind of minor figure in the kingdom of God. And don't let anybody frustrate you. Go for it. There may be leaders in churches in other places. Thank God I don't think it's true here, but in other places there are leaders that suppress women and keep them from being all that God has intended for them to be. Perhaps you can't work there, but don't let it stifle you. Grow toward God. Grow toward His likeness. Use your gifts wherever you can find a place to serve because God wants you to enter into your inheritance with everything you've got. Uh, Florence Nightingale desperately wanted to serve within her church and they wouldn't let her. So she founded the Red Cross. And she said at the end of her life, I would have given the church my heart, my mind, my soul, my hands, but she would not have me. So she went outside the church to serve. What a shame. What good could have been done within the church had she been able to use her gifts there? 
So don't be frustrated because you're a woman. Don't feel you're limited. Take everything that God has in mind for you. Now let's see. Uh, Two other things quickly I want to say and then we're done. There there are some in verse 10. Uh, Let's see. Where can I find this best? Uh, Okay. Chapter 16. Verse 10. There's some who did not drive out the Canaanites. This happened to be the Ephraimites. And then in verse 12, there's some who could not. I want to end on this note. There are two classes of, of, of people here. There are some who could not and there are some who would not. In other words, there are some people who cannot enter into their inheritance for various reasons, fully enter into it. These are people who, who may be saddled with with genetic proclivities that make it very difficult for them to be godlike. There are certain obsessions and compulsions and genetic flaws that, that cause them to, to struggle in their relationship with, with God. And though they may try their best, by God's grace, to become a more temperate, uh, less angry, a more loving, kinder, gentle person, they find it very, very difficult. They struggle and they struggle and they struggle. Chris made a very interesting observation a couple of weeks ago about God strengthening the Canaanites. I hope you picked up on that. Uh, actually, the, the way the text reads is that it uses the same words that's used of, of Joshua, be strong, and in, the, uh, and in the power of his might. It says of the Canaanites that God strengthened their hand. And I think the same is true of us. There are some sins that God may strengthen in order to make us more dependent upon him. Now, that sounds odd. But here's what God wants. God wants your love more than anything else in the world. And He may leave Canaanites in the land. He may leave areas of sin in your life to humble us, to make us more dependent upon Him, to be willing to spend, it makes us willing to spend more time with Him, to, 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 to move into the sphere of His love with more alacrity. That's what He wants. And when we stand before Him, we'll, we'll be just like Jesus Christ. He'll rid us of all of our obsessions, compulsions, sins that we've struggled with. But in the meantime, we will, have, we will have grown within, closer to Him, and more like Him in other areas. And the illustration of this, which we don't have time to look at, is that the Manassites came to Joshua and they said, we got a bad draw. we got a bum deal. You gave us the, the land of Israelan, and, and yeah, it's a great spot. Easy to cultivate. The Canaanites are there. They have chariots. Can't do anything about them. And Joshua didn't feel sorry for them. Just go up into the hills. Cut timber. And clear land. Maybe you can't take the lowland, but you can always take the heights. You can get closer to God. And more in love with Him. Now, the last group of people that I want to talk about are those who would not. And they're the saddest of all. And I hope that uh, there are none of uh, that, that sort among us, people who just simply don't want God. Jesus said, those are, the, those are the people whom the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire of other things crowd out their desire for God. There are men here that spend 40, 60 hours uh, a week making money are making a name for themselves who don't spend 30 seconds a week getting to know God. What a shame. What a shame. 
when God has given us Himself and everything that He is, when He's given us forgiveness, He's given us uh, His ongoing empowerment, He's given us heaven, and we don't even want to enter in. It's the cares of this world, the unwillingness to suffer for the cause of Christ, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things that crowd out the Word and make us unfruitful. We, we don't want it. God says, you can have it all. We don't want it. Years ago, my, my mother gave Carolyn and me a piece of land in Texas. It was really a lovely spot. A little meadow with an A-frame and <clears throat> woods all around it. A little stream flow through there with cottonwoods and willows. Beautiful, beautiful place. That's where my mother and father used to hide out. And uh, I'd seen it, of course, a couple of times. I don't think I ever really set foot on it, but I'd, I'd seen it. And uh, when she, she died, it was in her will, and, and it came in our possession. We owned it. Title deed right there. Never lived in it. Never set a foot on it. Never enjoyed it. Never went down there. Didn't want it. So we finally sold it. And there are people like that. God forbid that any of us should be there. Let's go for all that God has for us. Be like Caleb. Go for the heights. Go for God. I was going over some of this material with Carolyn, and, and she said, well, she said, you know, the three most important things about real estate. And I said, no, what's that? She said, location, location, location. How sweet it is to be found in God. Let's pray. Lord, we hear your words and we hunger to know you better. To, to, to be rid of those things that hold us back, that keep us from becoming the, the women and the men that we so much hunger to be. Um, thank you for your spirit who enables us. Thank you for your love that motivates us. May we enter into all that you have given us by your grace. We ask in Jesus' name.